Hey there. Ever wonder what happens to all those amazing screenplays that never make it to the big screen? Wonder no more. Welcome to Table Read Podcast, where we bring those undiscovered gems to life. Picture this. Talented actors giving incredible performances with the occasional laugh or blooper thrown in, produced by award-winning pros. From drama to comedy, TV pilots to feature films, there's something for everyone. And guess what? We release new episodes every week, so don't forget to hit that subscribe button. Table Read Podcast, where great stories finally get their chance to shine. Infernal Enigma. What man of us has never felt, walking through a twilight or writing down a date from his past, that he has lost something infinite? Jorge Luis Borges. Dream Tigers Part 1 Nothing has ever given me any reason to cast doubt upon my memories. Memory has, for me, always existed as a constant. The ones I've accumulated remain unchanged, and, although some are more vague than others, I can recall most of them with relative lucidity. I remember being in the backyard of my childhood home, when one of my sisters approached me and told me that our parents were getting a divorce. I was only three years old at the time, and looking back, I'm surprised I even knew what that word meant. I remember making little boats out of pieces of scrap wood and floating them down the creek that ran behind our house. I remember traveling to Germany with my mom to meet my grandparents, and I remember that the kids there would call me Meckyhead, because they thought my haircut resembled that of a hedgehog plush toy that was popular in their country. I remember learning to ride my first bike, a chrome GT Interceptor. And of course, I remember when the murder happened. It was the summer of 1997, and I was eight years old. My father was largely out of the picture at that point reaching out to me and my sisters only on Christmas and what few birthdays he managed to remember. My mother, my two sisters, and I were living in Whitehall, Montana, a town that, for as long as I can remember, has struggled to maintain a population of over a thousand people. We lived in a little gray house that stood in the shadow of the Tobacco Root Mountains, and I'd spent most of that summer building bike jumps in the field behind our house, and wrestling the N64 controller out of my sister's hands. As the middle sibling, I was condemned to share a room with my younger sister, Emma, while my older sister, Olivia, got a room of her own. There were few things I wanted to do less than lay in a bunk bed below my snot-nosed little sister, and so I would spend as little time as possible in my bedroom often laying on the couch in the living room until late into the night. I would watch reruns of The Simpsons and The X-Files, my nights punctuated by commercial breaks as one hot summer day faded into the next. 
My mom would periodically threaten to enforce curfews if I didn't start going to bed at a reasonable hour, the sternness of her German heritage showing through when she gave me the look and said it was time for bed. But I think she knew the divorce had hit me pretty hard, and perhaps she even felt guilty about that. Either way, she'd taken to a more hands-off parenting approach, seeming to hope that if she let me do whatever I want, it would abate the quiet melancholy she'd seen in me since my father left. It was a muggy night in early August, and I was watching my way through another rerun marathon when the signal started to warp and the screen filled with static. I changed the channel, searching for a better signal, but only found the nightly news. I was about to change it to something else when an image on the screen stopped me. On the TV, the news anchor was saying that the police were asking for the public's help in identifying someone that may have been involved in a crime. They said that the person they were looking for was a young boy, a boy whose police sketch they were displaying on the TV. It was a face that looked jarringly like my own. I knew I hadn't committed any crime, and that they must just be looking for a boy that happened to look like me. But it still got under my skin, seeing that uncanny sketch on the TV. The news anchor went on to explain that the crime had occurred south of Piedmont, but said that, out of respect for the families of those involved, they couldn't provide any further details on the nature of the crime. I turned off the TV and sat there in the dark, wondering what the boy that looked like me had done. The following morning, the story was already becoming a local sensation. When Olivia caught wind of it, she seized on the opportunity and began lampooning me. You're busted, she balked. Hey, Mom, Rip's on America's Most Wanted. Rip was, of course, not my given name, but a nickname based on my initials. Richard Ingmar Peterson. R.I.P. The joking continued for a few days. Soon, Olivia started saying that she was going to wait until the reward money reached a sizable sum before turning me in to the authorities. Every time I refused to give her the TV remote, she threatened to call the tip line. I certainly didn't enjoy being tormented, but I was actually kind of grateful that it hadn't happened during the school year. My sister could be obnoxious, but she was nothing compared to the older kids at school. It was later that week when my mom stormed into the kitchen and demanded that Olivia stop ridiculing me. She sat us down at the kitchen table and told us that she'd heard from a coworker what had happened and that it was very serious. A young girl had been killed, she told us. She had been drowned in the Jefferson River, held under the cold water by an unidentified young boy. A girl is dead, she said. Do you understand? She looked at us, repeating the question over and over as if something in this horrific news was supposed to make sense to us. That is why, she said. A little girl is dead. It's not a joke when someone is dead. My sister and I just sat there in horrified shock. 
It was a tragedy more brutal than anything we could have ever imagined, and it had occurred just miles from our house. The girl, whose name we would later learn was Melanie Hammond, had been killed just weeks shy of her fourth birthday. The official story was that on the morning of August 5th, Melanie had been in the backyard of her house, looking for her cat, when she had apparently wandered off. At 10.15 a.m., a farmer in a nearby field said he saw a young boy emerge from a grove of trees and approach a young girl. The man watched for a few short minutes and said that when he lost sight of the children, they were walking hand in hand in the direction of the Jefferson River. At 10.22 a.m., a motorist driving over the Kellam Road Bridge reported seeing the children as they waded waist-deep into the murky water. They said that the taller child seemed to be guiding the smaller one as they walked deeper and deeper into the quickly moving current. And while it was an odd scene to behold, they claimed that neither of the children appeared to be in any sort of distress. Forty minutes later, though, Melanie's body would be found a half mile down the river. Her lungs were filled with water, and the coroner would later find bruises that indicated she'd been held underwater. Bruises that were consistent with those made by the hands of a child. There were 106 boys below the age of 10 living in Whitehall, and in the weeks that followed, all of them were questioned, myself included. And though I couldn't recall exactly what I'd been doing at 10 a.m. on the morning of August 5th, I had apparently provided enough information for them to be satisfied that I was innocent. Unlike some of the other kids that they seemed more suspicious of, I never got called back for a second or third round of questioning. And later that fall, as our town descended into a media circus, my mom was offered a job at a hospital in Spokane, Washington, and, seeing it as a golden opportunity, decided to move the family west. But even after I left Montana, Melanie's death left a lasting impression on me. I'd never met her in her short life, but the shock and horror I felt at her killing didn't soon leave me. Even at my young age, I knew people were capable of horrible, vile things. But something about Melanie's death felt so personal. Part 2 most of the people I grew up in Spokane with only talked about how badly they wanted to leave it. But when high school had come and gone, I was surprised at how many of them stuck around. I ended up leaving just before I turned 20, opting to move to Olympia with the hope of realizing my rock and roll dreams. I started a post-punk band called Feral Blood with two of my friends. We recorded a demo and played a few dozen local gigs, but our musical ambitions never took us outside of Thurston County. Even after Feral Blood had broken up, though, I remained a staunch fan of Olympia's local music scene. I continued attending shows semi-regularly, and when I look back on that time in my life, it's marked by a sense of youthful innocence. Or maybe it just seems that way in hindsight. 
because it so starkly contrasts what would follow. In the winter of 2016, I was at a venue called The Argus, where a band that called themselves Pornstar Poltergeist were playing a live show. I don't honestly remember that much about their set. It was something that would happen after the show that would bring about my unraveling. I was standing outside the venue in a cloud of cigarette smoke, waiting for my friends to make their way through the crowd. Two women walked past me and stepped into a taxi. And just before they shut the door, I heard one of them say to the other, It reminds me of Camp Roggenbuck. The taxi drove off and the line echoed through my head. Camp Roggenbuck. Why did it sound so familiar? Well, obviously because I'd been there. Hadn't I? In fact, my knee-jerk reaction to the statement was that I was surprised someone in Washington would have heard of a small-town summer camp in Montana. That was where Camp Roggenbuck was located, wasn't it? Yes, it had to have been. I'd gone before the move. I was certain of it. But by the time I got home that night, I was already beginning to feel doubt creep in. Exactly how much did I remember from Camp Roggenbuck? Strangely, very little. I couldn't recall exactly where it was or what went on there. I couldn't make out the faces of any camp counselors or any of the campers I'd attended with. I couldn't even remember if we'd slept in tents or cabins. I could only recall a single memory. And not even a whole memory but a fraction of one. I was rowing a green canoe towards the shore of a lake. The sun was setting, or perhaps rising, and though I didn't turn and look behind me, I had a sense that something was back there. An island, perhaps. Something I was trying to get away from. And that was it. That was all I could remember from my stay at Camp Roggenbuck, which on its surface wasn't so bizarre. There were lots of events, whole periods of time from my childhood that I retained little memory of. But this felt different. It was like a broken shard of memory, a piece too small to provide any real context about the event as a whole. When I got back to my apartment that night, I checked to see if I could find any information about the camp online. I thought maybe if I saw some pictures of it on someone's Facebook, it would jog my memory. But the internet could provide me with nothing pertinent to my dilemma. There were no photographs, no stories, no reviews. The camp didn't exist on any maps. Nobody had written about it on social media or reported it to the Better Business Bureau? There was no record of any place called Camp Roggenbuck. And yet, there was that splinter of memory, still lodged in my mind. I was certain I had been there. Like an ominous figure that had emerged from the shadows, I was confronted with something I wasn't prepared to defend myself against. I couldn't reconcile the fact that all those years had passed without me thinking critically about the memory, 
It was like I was just familiar enough with it to not question it. But when it was brought to my attention and I was forced to acknowledge it, it just didn't make sense. For one thing, most of the camps in Montana were centered around hunting and fishing, neither of which I've ever really done. To me, these have always seemed somewhat like father-son activities. It seemed on one hand perfectly acceptable that I would have gone to a summer camp, and on the other hand it seemed utterly perplexing. I tried to determine when exactly I had gone to the camp. It had to have been the summer of 97, I thought. The summer the murder happened. I'd spent the whole summer break the year before visiting my mom's family in Germany. And the summer before that, I would have been six years old, hardly old enough to attend a summer camp on my own. But if both events had happened in the same summer, how come I could so clearly remember the events surrounding the murder, but was unable to recall hardly anything around the camp? Was it just because the murder was so much more shocking and dramatic that it overrode my memories of the camp? I decided to call my mom and ask what she remembered about the camp. Perhaps she could fill me in on some of the accumulating blank spots in my memory. I didn't want to jump right into sounding unhinged, though, so I began the call with small talk before easing in to my question about the camp. She filled me in on her efforts to squirrel-proof her bird feeder and told me about some of the local Spokane gossip before I inconspicuously asked, Oh, Mom, do you remember that summer camp I went to? Camp Roggenbuck, I think it was called? Back in Montana? Camp? she said. Like a church camp? No, I said, like a summer camp. In the summer of 1997. She fell quiet at my mention of the date. Melanie's death had always deeply saddened my mother. Even after we moved to Washington, she would go to church every year on August 5th to pray for the Hammond family. I don't remember any, she said. We took you on vacation? I took you camping in Yellowstone? I took you to Vancouver? You went to the beach with your sisters? Yeah, I remember that, I said. But there's something else I remember, too. I told her about the jagged piece of memory that had been floating around my mind, about being on an island in the middle of a lake and rowing back to the shore in a canoe. She gently asked me if it was possible that I was mistaken. Had one of my friends gone on a trip to this camp and I'd heard him talking about it? Or maybe had I confused our family camping trip to Yellowstone with this so-called Camp Roggenbuck? No, I assured her. This memory felt real. It felt lived. It didn't feel like something I may or may not have done. It felt like something I was certain I had done. I just couldn't access all of it in my mind. Rip, she said. Are you okay? I should have known this would bring concern. Here comes the volatile middle child who's upset about the past again. I'm fine, Mom. Really, I said. I just heard someone talking about this camp and... I don't know, maybe I'm confused. For a while longer, I stayed on the phone, trying to convince my mom I was fine. 
It was probably obvious that something was bothering me, though. When we hung up, I laid in my bed and stared at the ceiling. My memories felt like they were buckling under the pressure of doubt. But what if my mom, too, was only failing to remember? I flipped open my laptop and looked up the Reddit page dedicated to the state of Montana. It wasn't the most active and thriving community on the website, but I hoped at least someone would recognize the name of the camp. I wrote a post asking if anyone had been to or heard of Camp Roggenbuck. I included the general location where I thought it might have been and some details about the terrain based on what little I could remember. The next day, I reached out to my sisters as well. I didn't want to give them any reason to question my mental stability, so I kept it fairly general. Their responses were, well, predictable, I suppose. They said that they didn't remember me ever going to any kind of summer camp, and that they'd never even heard of a place called Camp Roggenbuck. And once they, too, had denied that any such event had ever taken place, my doubt became insidious. It was starting to become frighteningly obvious to me that Camp Roggenbuck wasn't a real place, and it never had been. But if the camp wasn't real, then how could I remember it? How could I account for that image in my head of rowing the canoe across the lake? What if... It was a screen memory, a defense mechanism. What if I had fabricated my memory of Camp Roggenbuck to cover up another memory, one that I was trying to repress? I looked at my face in the bathroom mirror and wondered what I was capable of. Could I have killed Melanie? What if the boy that witnesses saw looked like me because it was me? I've already admitted that I don't remember exactly what I was doing on the morning of August 5th, and it's not like my mom was keeping me on a short leash. I could have easily ridden my bike down to the Jefferson River. I, of course, have no memory of doing so, or of going anywhere near Melanie Hammond. But what if it's my memory that can't be trusted? What if I'd shrouded the horrific act of holding a girl underwater with the pleasant falsehood of rowing a canoe across a peaceful lake? What if Camp Roggenbuck was nothing more than a patch I had placed over a gaping wound, a wound inflicted not upon myself, but upon an innocent little girl? I looked deeper into my eyes, grayish-blue in the bathroom mirror, looking back at me with baleful emptiness. Do I even know who you are? I asked my reflection. Part 3 There were still those moments when my mind felt whole. I asked myself if I was overreacting. It wasn't all that weird to not remember minor details from one's childhood. Lots of people can't remember much from their pre-adolescent years. Was I inventing some ridiculous crisis over a non-event? Or was there actually reason to believe that I was a monster? Someone capable of killing a small child? It made me sick to think about. But if Camp Roggenbuck wasn't real, how could I trust my memories of what happened that summer? 
I questioned everything I remembered, everything I thought I knew about myself. Do you know what it feels like to suspect the worst of yourself? It's like there's a stranger living in your own head. I was rapidly spiraling, and my descent continued until something reached out of the chaos and stopped me. It was a response to the post I'd written on the Montana subreddit, and as I read through it, I nearly dropped my phone to the floor. The comment had come from a user named Mojito Mustache, and it read, I remember hearing about that place. My sister used to talk about Camp Roggenbuck. I was shocked, having grown almost certain that I'd made the whole thing up. I clicked on the user's profile and wrote them a message. I know I'm just an online stranger, I wrote, but would it be possible for me to talk to you, or even meet? I promise I'm not crazy. I wrote the last part even though I wasn't sure it was true anymore. To my surprise, they agreed. As it turned out, Mojito Mustache was a guy named Stan Tenner. Like me, Stan had grown up in southwestern Montana before moving out west. He said he was working as a bartender in Seattle, and, perhaps a bit hastily, I asked if I could drive up from Olympia to talk to him. He seemed a bit skeptical, but ultimately agreed. The bar he worked at was a place called the Spread Eagle that stood on a hill overlooking the Puget Sound. When I arrived on that Thursday morning, it was nearly empty. Only a few patrons sat propped up on bar stools, muttering to each other in low, raspy voices. I sat in an empty stool, and a brawny guy with close-cropped hair and a bristly beard walked over and tossed a coaster down in front of me. Stan? I asked. That's me, he said. And you must be Rip. I nodded. And you've been to Camp Roggenbuck? he asked. Well, that's what I'm trying to figure out, I said. I explained my brief memory of the camp, but didn't mention Melanie's murder. I told him I was trying to determine if the camp was real because I had a bet going with my sister. I remember going there, and she doesn't believe me, I told him. I tried to make it sound as harmless and innocent as possible, but I wouldn't be surprised if he could hear the desperation in my words. When I finished talking, he stood there for a moment in silence, hunched over the bar, bracing himself with his elbows. It's weird, he said in a hushed tone, because my sister talked about going to that place, but nobody in my family could remember it either. Another pause ensued, and then he said, To be honest, we just thought it was one of her delusions. Is she? I began, but then stopped myself. She's not exactly stable, he said. She had a few pretty bad episodes. Lives in a psychiatric facility in Butte, Montana now. She's doing a lot better, though. I'm sorry, I said. Well, it is what it is, he told me. You want something to drink, by the way? I'm fine, I said. Look, Stan, what if I told you this whole thing has become pretty dire? That there's actually a bit more riding on this than a bet with my sister. It could be... I paused, wondering how delusional I sounded to this man. It could be my sanity at stake here. 
And I mean, I know that she's your family and that she's, well, she's suffered. But I was wondering if there's any way that I could talk to her about this. Stan stood there in silence for a long time, still hunched, leaning on his forearms and looking off at the far wall of the bar. Look, he said, exhaling slowly. I don't know why a kid's summer camp is so important to you, but if this place is real, I interrupted, if the place that me and your sister are remembering isn't just a delusion, wouldn't that mean something? Wouldn't you want to know? He stood there in silence for a while longer. Well, she definitely won't talk on the phone, he said. She doesn't like phones. She has a thing about not being able to see the person she's talking to. But the facility has visiting hours, and as long as you're respectful, I don't see any reason why not. Wait, are you serious? I said. Thank you. This could, well, it could save me, I admitted. I mean, I can't guarantee that she'll talk to you, he said, but you can try. Her name's Grace. Grace Tenor. She's at St. Agatha's Residential Facility in Butte, Montana. I thanked him again, and in return he asked if he could take a photograph of my driver's license. Just in case anything happens, he said. I obliged, handing over my license and standing there awkwardly while he snapped a photo of it on his phone. It should go without saying, he said, but if you cause her even the slightest disturbance, I'll find out. He handed my license back to me. And then I'll find you, he said. You seem like a nice guy, but if that doesn't turn out to be the case, don't expect me to go easy on you. I gave him every assurance I had that I would do nothing to hurt his sister. But could I even be trusted with a statement like that? The whole drive back to Montana, I felt like I was receding into the past. I drove by landmarks that I knew I'd seen before, but couldn't say exactly when. It was a landscape at once foreign and familiar. I had the directions pulled up on my phone, but strangely felt as though I hardly needed to use them. I was led by a vague intuition, guided through darkened mountain passes by a silent passenger. As I passed through Missoula, the sun broke the horizon and pillars of light began to cut through the gray morning sky. Though I'd driven straight through the night, I was wide awake. Anticipation and fear kept me restless the whole way. Fingers cinched around the steering wheel, eyes staring blankly ahead. I lit the last cigarette in my pack as the city of Butte came into view. Sitting below a smooth blanket of clouds, it was situated among rolling hills that stood at the base of towering granite peaks. On the northeast end of town sat the Berkeley Pit, a former copper mine that was over a mile in diameter. From the highway, it almost looked like a clean slice of the earth had been cored out and filled with dark, sludgy water. When I'd smoked the cigarette down to the filter, my trembling fingers stuffed it into an empty Coke can sitting in the cup holder. I felt around for my phone and pulled up the map, following the little blue line on my screen as it led me towards an uncertain fate. It was a quarter past nine in the morning when I pulled up to St. Agatha's. 
and according to the sign on the front door, that meant visiting hours were underway. Like most medical plazas, St. Agatha's was a sterile and drab place. It consisted of three brick buildings constructed around a triangular courtyard. The main building, which was the biggest, sat beneath a gabled roof, fitted with a gothic-style spire that cast a long, angular shadow. I went inside and walked up to the reception desk, where an attendant sat reading a magazine. "'Can I help you?' she asked. "'Yeah,' I said. "'I'm looking for Grace Tenner.' "'Are you family? A friend?' she asked. "'I'm a family friend, yeah,' I said stiffly. "'Well, you'll just need to sign in here,' she said, sliding a clipboard across the desk to me. I scribbled my name down and slid it back to her. "'Thank you,' she said. "'I'm pretty sure Miss Tenner is just out there,' she pointed over my shoulder at the window overlooking the courtyard. And there I could see a young woman, sitting alone on a bench below a spruce tree. Her hair was short and brown, and it hung over her face as she dug through her pocket for something. She was dressed not in a hospital gown, but in a plain white shirt and plain white pants. She was clearly not the person I'd expected her to be. I'd pictured her in a room with padded walls, muttering to herself. But as I approached her, sitting in a lush courtyard, smoking a cigarette and serenely thumbing through her journal, she seemed more like someone who was cogent and aware, someone who had managed to carve a peaceful life out of hardship and despair. As I came near, she looked up at me. Hi, she said, exhaling smoke out of the side of her mouth and eyeing me skeptically. Hi, I said. I'm Rip, or Richard, you can call me. I, I met your brother. Well, I had a question, and your brother answered it, and... She smiled. Do you want to sit down there, Rip? She asked. I sat down next to her and took a deep breath. I didn't realize how tired I was until that moment. I turned and looked at her, gray eyes studying me, her journal clasped shut in her grip as if it contained something sacred. And perhaps it did. Your brother told me that you remember Camp Roggenbuck, I said. The instant the words left my mouth, her eyes went dead, the curious expression fading from her face. You remember it? I said. It's real? She said nothing, just stared at the ground and nodded. Slowly, her eyes rose, and she met my gaze with a cold, petrified stare. I met myself there, she said. The words were chilling even though I didn't immediately know what she meant by them. What do you, what do you mean, I asked. She barely seemed to hear me. Immersed in some terrible thought, she stared off into the distance, not really seeing anything. It was on the island, she said finally. They took us to the island and I met a girl there that looked just like me. She was me, but different. There was something wrong with her. Grace's breathing grew deeper and more erratic. I could see tears accumulating in the corners of her eyes. She asked me to bring her back with me. She said she was never allowed to leave the island. She was begging me. Grace's teeth were chattering 
Tears were rolling down her face as her voice reached a near screaming pitch. One of the facility staff, a stout man with a mop of curly hair, took notice of Grace's change in temperament and started towards us. Grace, he said, are you okay? But Grace didn't even acknowledge him. She was lost in a trance. She looked just like me, she kept saying. She looked just like me. The man scowled at me as he held Grace by the shoulders and guided her back towards the facility. I was left sitting alone on that bench, as fragments of memory, jostled free by Grace's words, began to settle in my mind. I still couldn't recall exactly where the camp was or who was in charge of it, but I remembered the island in vivid clarity. Someone had sent me across the lake to the island, and I'd met a boy there who looked exactly like me. He had emerged from behind a pine tree, and the sight of him had startled me enough to nearly knock me over. Why are you here? was all I could manage to say. He looked at me and smiled. Because the Garden of Eden is burning, he said. I backed away from him in horror retreating to my canoe. The whole trip back to shore, I dared not look behind me. I was gripped by an unbearable sensation. A creeping suspicion that he had climbed onto the canoe behind me. That if I turned around, I would see his smiling face staring back at me like a perverse reflection. But if I didn't look at him, I told myself, he couldn't be there. He couldn't be there because he couldn't be real. If I just kept my head down and paddled the rest of the way to shore, I would leave this whole thing behind, purge the entire experience from my memory. Apparently, I didn't forget it all, though, and neither did Grace. I watched the man carefully guiding her inside, still sobbing, head hung low, I slowly gathered myself and walked back to my car. As I set off on the long road back to Washington, under a somber gray sky, all I could think about was the face I'd seen on the news as a child. The face that looked identical to my own. Could it really be true? Could the boy I saw on that island be responsible for Melanie's murder? Or had I invented a fantasy based on Grace's delusions, attempting to separate myself from the fact that I might have killed someone? The wind whistled through the canyons as I drove. I looked up and locked eyes with my reflection in the rearview mirror. The Garden of Eden is burning, I heard a voice say. Hey, Jeff here. Uh, If you enjoy my podcast, I just want to let you know that I have a Patreon that you can subscribe to. It's $3 per episode, and you get to listen to every episode a few days early. Plus, you also get access to my full-length audiobook, Solace. It's sort of a cosmic horror slash mystery story where this journalist uncovers uh, unexplainable disappearance and 
sort of becomes obsessed with it. You can listen to the first 30 minutes for free in the episode titled Solace. The Patreon also has its own RSS feed, so you can listen on whatever podcasting app you like. And the link for it is in the show notes, as well as in the bio for the show. But if you can't see it, it's patreon.com slash A-C-E-P-H-A-L-E. You can also leave a rating or write a review. That goes a long way for helping the show get listeners. You can follow me on social media. The links for Instagram and Twitter will be in the show notes as well. And of course, just thank you for being here. It really uh, seriously means a lot that you listen to this. Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the roll of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is now what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts.